This episode is one of the primary reasons I put the word unusual in the title of this podcast. My guest and my friend has not only built an incredible, successful enterprise in a very new, old-fashioned way, he's also in the forefront of confronting the international refugee crisis and creating jobs in rural America. My guest will be the CEO of Chobani Yogurt, but you're going to be surprised to learn a few other things, like how the idea for a billion-dollar business came out of a garbage can, and why the best place for the next Silicon Valley may be literally a valley. I'm Michael Sheehan, and this is Politics as Unusual. Today's episode is brought to you by FedEx. They're affordable, they're fast, they're our sponsor. Einstein is credited with saying, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Pretty smart, huh? Well, it turns out that Einstein most likely did not say that. That often misattributed quote is actually the work of mystery novelist Rita Mae Brown, who in 1983 wrote the quip for one of her characters. But as usual, a guy got all the credit. Some things don't change, huh? But back to our quote. If candidates and legislators want a different result, they're going to have to stop doing the same old thing. They need a new approach, a new way of thinking and acting. So I looked around to the private sector for the secrets of success, and no company has been more successful in a more unconventional way than Chobani Yogurt, which has been a roaring and surprising success. So what can policymakers and lawmakers learn from a yogurt maker? And we're being joined by my guest, the CEO of Chobani Yogurt, Hamdi Ulukaya. Hamdi, nice to see you. Good to see you. Everybody who heard that I was going to come and talk to you asked me to ask you the same opening question. Where did you come from and how did you get here? Because, no offense, we're on a podcast. Most people would not say, hey, that guy looks like the CEO. Yeah. Well, I... Ask myself that question too. How did I get here? Mm-hmm. Um, when I was growing up, a little boy, imagine um, this, you know, Colorado type of mountains, you know, wild rivers, uh, nomads and sheep and shepherds, um, you know, cold at nights and you know, a little warmer at daytime, and maybe the snow on the, you know, the heights of the mountains and. Um, and I was always wondering what would be behind that highest mountain out there and that it was in the distance. I always wondered what would be the world out there um, growing up. So as I said, I, don't know, I grew up in a, in a very rural area of eastern part of Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, my family tradition goes back hundreds of hundreds of years growing, you know, shepherding and animals and farmings and making cheese and yogurt and um, you know I think until 50 years ago the same exact way of doing things were similar to thousand years ago never mm-hmm. changed they never exposed to anything yeah um, so if they were making cheese or the culture that they were using they were probably you can go back to 500 or thousand years uh, if they were making a carpet for them to you know use it in their tent or home, probably be made exactly the same way of, you know, hundreds of years ago. Um, that's my back background. Uh-huh. 
but then somehow you end up in Albany, in Albany. New York. How did that happen? So I was talking to my friends in our, my, my brother's shop in Ankara and saying, I'm going to France. One stranger that I had seen all my you know, times in the store, he would come at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, buy some bread, some meat, some eggs, some vegetables, would not say one word, and he would live across the street from that store. And that day, he heard me talking to my friend that I'm going to France. He opened his mouth and said, don't be a stupid, go to America. Mm-hmm. So he must have heard all my conversation. And I looked back to this guy and said, wow, you speak, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> hi, <laughs> that kind of stuff, like sarcasm. And yeah. he says, I, you know, look, listen to me, he says, you go to America. I said, why would I do that, man? But one thing that stick with me is the guy says, why don't you go and see if you don't like it, you can always go to your Europe. And I waited for him the next day because that night I couldn't sleep, what he said. And I waited for him next day to show, show up. He came at five o'clock again. And I said to him, so how do you go to America? <laughs> <laughs> he said, okay. Um, he wrote in a piece of paper and somebody's name. He says, you go to this person. Um, you tell him, it was a her. You tell her that you're gonna go and learn English and he'll find you, she'll find you a school. And that's how you do it. And, and within one month of that conversation, uh, I had the acceptance from uh, Adelphi University in Long Island. Uh-huh. So now we flash a few years forward, and you're in Albany, and I hear you get the idea from a trash can. Yeah, that was, you know, fast forward. Yeah. In 2005, while I was in the cheese plant, I saw this ad and said, fully equipped yogurt plant for sale. Just like junk mail that yeah. comes to your table that you try to clean up, you know, once a, once a week or something that I'm going through, a, I'm smoking and having tea and it's a mess. And throw it, throw it away to the garbage can. And then about 20 minutes, half an hour later, I went back to the garbage can for some reasons and I picked it up. Now it has all the dirt in it and I'm reading this. And I called the number. Mm-hmm. It was about six seven it was dark outside it was winter time and the person answered told me that it was a plant that uh, was not too far away from Johnstown that uh, it was closing by craft right um, that the, the, the price was $700,000 I'm looking at the pictures in the ad I'm looking at the tanks and the fillers because they had so many pictures in there and I know I have a cheese plant and I know how much equipment cost I'm thinking they might have missed one zero. So I don't ask this question again, not to make him surprised, like trying to be a smart there. <laughs> and I said, can we come and see it tomorrow? And he said, yeah. And, and I went there with a, someone who works in the cheese plant and met Rich. Rich took me out the plant. It took me a couple of hours to get there. There was no Google map at back then. So it was, you're going into rounding roads. You're on, you're on a paper map. You're on a paper map. And then if you are in up there between Johnstown and... Know, South Edmiston, New York. Thank God Google Map exists now. <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible to find these places. And I finally made it. And I remember like yesterday uh, how it felt. Um, and the, Rich, who was the production manager, was showing me around. It was like a labyrinth. You can tell they added on a lot. There's this old smell in there. There's dripping, some drippings going on. There are some people are working to close the factory. Mm-hmm. But it's quiet. It's sad. It's very sad. Yeah. Um, you feel like, like I remember that feeling, you know, in our town when somebody died, 
mm-hmm. you would have this, you know, you would have this uh, cloud over you that mm-hmm. whatever you do, you just cannot lift yourself up, that you're, you're very sad. Um, and I know why, because that plant was there for 100 years. It, it was one of them. It, it, the uncle worked there, the grandfather worked there, everybody worked there. It had a symbolic meaning, but also it had economic meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, it had a memory meaning, it had all that kind of meaning, and it was the end, and it was coming. You know, they knew it was coming, but that was the day. And within that environment, I walked, and I remember leaving the plant and calling my attorney, and I said, I just found a plant. It's for sale, and it's so cheap, and I'd like to buy it. And uh, he said? He, <laughs> he said, okay, wait, 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 wait. You know, s- you know, slow down, slow down. And I keep telling him, and he said, Hamdi, you know, if it was any value to it, why would Kraft close it? If it was any value to the plant, why would Kraft cl- close it? If it was any value into the yogurt world, why would Kraft get out of it? Yeah, a couple of bucks from where we are right now on Wall Street, they would call that a distressed asset. It's distressed asset. And basically, he went one more and said, they're selling it as is, right? I said, yeah, like car, yeah. And he says, okay, that means that that plant has been there for 100 years. They probably have done some mistakes on the environment or all that stuff. So they're looking for an idiot Turk to unload it to. Mm-hmm. You're taking all the guilt. And they found one. They found they you. they found me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you're right, you're right. I, I, I said, you know, stupid idea anyway. So, but I couldn't help myself and I would call him again next, next day. I said, Mario, I, 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 something there. I, I mean, I, even the value of the junk is enough. You know, there's no risk here. He said the obvious, you know, the, the, the painful truth. And he said, Hamdi, you don't have money. You really don't have money. <laughs> you know, you know how long you haven't paid me yet. You know, it's, it's, it was true. I had not paid him for six months. Um, there's no way you could find that kind of money to be able to buy this. And if you did find the money to buy it, there's no way you could find the money to put it back in. There's, it's just, yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. But you found it. I found it. Um, found a way. Didn't give up. There was two local bankers. They found a way. Um, and on August 17, 2005, I had the key in my hand yeah. of that the plant. Now, let's flash forward because you had to make your first sale at some point. So you finally figure, and it's my understanding it took you like three years to get two years to get it down. So that was the kind of yogurt you wanted to make. Everyone remembers like your first client. First guy I ever coached was a, I remember was this, he was running for local office in Alabama. And he had this really thick Alabama accent. And the theme of his speech was better business. But with a thick Alabama accent, it was butter business. <laughs> and so he's using this phrase like 16 times in the speech. So I leaned over to the campaign manager and I asked, do you think accent's going to be a problem? And he looked over at me and said, I don't think so. I can understand you just fine, son. <laughs> and I learned a lesson that day. I was the one with the accent, not them. Right. And that was a really important lesson. Now, you sold your first shipment of yogurt to an unusual place. I shipped the first 60 cases to a kosher store in Long Island. And I wanted to make sure that it had the Circle U kosher on it because uh-huh. I love the quality control aspect of it. 
And they said there is a store in Long Island will be willing to take it. Um, and the first picture of product being on the shelf was sent to me by Kyle O'Brien, who was my only sales guy at the time. So let me see, an Irish guy selling Greek yogurt to a Jewish delicatessen. Delicatessen yeah. made by a Turkish Kurd. <laughs> it just gets worse and worse, or better. <laughs> and so it took us 12 hours to pack that 60 case. Mm -hmm. And it was probably 9 to 10 o'clock at night. And once we finished it, it was like, maybe seven, eight of us, 10 of us, this small filler. And we are covered by yogurt from head <laughs> to toe. Like literally, we are white. And once we finished it, Kyle and I, we just stepped outside and happens to be a roof of the, the plant. And I'm bad habit, I'm smoking and looking into the dark and I'm telling to Kyle, I said, Kyle, what are we gonna do now? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> So, well, we get to work. We gotta go sell it. This is how Kyle sounds. This, <laughs> this optimism that he had, this 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 unreasonable optimism mm -hmm. that he had. Um, again, I, you know, this story I'm telling is people think that I built this all myself. No, you don't do anything. It's by just yourself. like a, a campaign. No one runs themselves. No, you got a whole group. No. no, it's funny. Every candidate will tell you that story when they first make the decision that they're going to run. I think Martin O'Malley, who was the uh, governor of Maryland, talks about when he first runs for local office and you go door to door, people don't answer the door, or they do, and they're sort of rude to you, or slam the door in your face. But he says that that day comes when you suddenly connect with two or three people, and you see that look in their eye, or you make that connection, and you have that kind of flash that maybe I'm doing the right thing. Maybe this is the road to getting something done. So already we're in this idea of what do you learn in business? How do you apply to politics? Or what are the problems people can give to you? So you made the decision to sell yogurt. I mean, the candidate has to make the decision, I'm going to run. Was it that first sale that said to you, yep, I'm on the right place? Yeah, that was actually... Uh, the first job done. Yeah. Meaning I got the product. Doesn't yeah. mean immediate success. Right. But I got the product. It's like you get the nomination. Exactly. Doesn't mean, mean I'm going to win, but at least I got the shot I at it. I got the shot at it. Now, yeah. now it's up to me. I got, I got this part done. Uh -huh. And I have a bigger mountain to climb. I don't have money. I don't have a lot of capacity. I don't have a lot of people. We have never done this before. Uh -huh. um, we have competitors massively big out there in the world that have all kinds of resources. And if they see that we have succeeded on this product is on the shelf, they can steal this idea immediately. It's not a rocket science. They can copy it and put it in the marketplace like a hundred times faster than sure. us. So it doesn't mean immediate success, but at least the first part is done. All right. But what I'll, what I'll, what I'll yeah. say yeah. is the hardest part wasn't the getting the product done, which was very hard. The hardest part was, Michael, I, 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 I don't know if I have said this to any place else before, that when I got the key for the plant, I hired four people from the 55 that let go by Kraft. Uh -huh. And their names were Maria, Rich, Frank, and um, Mike. You remember them to, to this day? Oh yeah, two of them are, three of them are still in the plant today. Yeah. 
Maria Rich and Frank are still in the flat. And I hired them because the guy who was the managing during closing of the plant told me that if you ever, which I don't think you will, but if you ever turn the plant back on, these are the people you will need. <laughs> <laughs> they know what the switch is. They know the switches. They've been here forever. <laughs> Maria will know what to call about things. And Rich knows how to run the place. Frank knows how to run the uh, wastewater plant. And Mike, he's been here for 35 years. He retired here. And he came back to close it. But this guy knows every pipe, every wire, every switch, everything. This is, this, he will make you. I mean, this is, mm -hmm. and these are all local people. So the first board meeting I had was with these four people and myself. Right. And this is the, probably the second day of August 17, probably the same day, August 17, 2005. Yeah. And we're sitting around this old table in the office and they're looking at me that I have the magic answer, right? It's like, okay, what do we do now? So I said, we're going to paint the wall outside. That was your first building. idea. That was my first idea. We're going to paint the walls outside. Mike said, I've been here for 35 years. I know for a fact, for the last 20 years, nobody painted those walls. <laughs> Tell me you have more ideas than that one. Please. Please. Now, I'm looking at from their perspective, from Maria's, Rich, Frank's, and Mike's perspective. This large company, Kraft, just closed the factory. They closed it and they're gone after 80 years, 90 years. Now, who are you? Your name is Hamdi. I cannot pronounce it yet. Mm -hmm. I've never seen anyone like you before here. There's another immigrant here. His name is Frank, who has a pizza shop in the town. But yeah. you're the second one. But he's been here for 25 <laughs> years, so he's okay. Who are you? Right. Um, and I can tell you're not a very rich guy. The, the car is you're driving is okay. And you don't look too fancy to me. And you can't tell me you own this and this and that, so I cannot. I'm thinking from their side. So if the craft is closing, you hired me. Should I trust that you're going to be able to pay me the next week's payment? You know, payroll? Forget about bringing the factory back to office because based on that payment, I will feed my family. I will pay my mortgage. I will drive my car. They have a life decisions to make. It's not a fancy playing over here, right? Right. My hardest challenge was to convince that four people that they can depend on this decision and they can bet on this decision and they will be okay. That was the most important sale of all. That was the most important sale of all. In that moment, the only thing I had as a, as a material mm -hmm. wasn't to show up, oh look, what, how much plants I have or how much wealth I have or how much I've done this before or how smart I am or all that kind of stuff which didn't exist any of them the only thing I had is how dedicated I am mm -hmm. that how much I will be putting myself into this that everything that I say you guys to do I will do with you or I will do before you I, I will do in front of you mm-hmm and that still lived in Chobani's everywhere, that the leadership is not telling people what to do, doing things with them, mm -hmm. and showing the, finding the way together. And when we paint that wall that summer, mm -hmm. every single day, I painted with them. Yeah. Every day, we painted that wall, and there was a, you know, the biker's bar 
across the street and they uh-huh. used to make jokes about it. Hey, you forgot that corner. You forgot that <laughs> corner. <laughs> yeah. Everyone says, what an idiot these guys are. I'm listening to this guy and painting this wall, the plant that is being closed. Um, but what happened during that summer is they got to know me by painting yeah. the wall. You know, this is just like the experience almost every fairly prominent senator who's been in office for a while will tell you that they go to the senior alderman or they go to the political consultant who has just been there for a year and they have to sell themselves that you can believe in me, you can trust me, and then they guide you through the thicket. So in a sense, finding that first convert, okay, or that's the start of a business, that's the start of a campaign. I can't think of any campaign that have two or three people that form that nucleus at the beginning. Now, sometimes it's a sister, like Joe Biden had his sister, Valerie. Sometimes with the Kennedy family, it was a neighbor or a friend. But there's always that core at the very beginning. Now, the next thing a candidate has to do is stand out. Now, I guess, did you think being a Greek yogurt stood you out of the crowd? Yeah, no, it was, um, this had to be nutritionally perfect and it had to be natural. But most importantly, it had to be accessible. What do you mean by accessible? Accessible means you're living in a city with a high income or you're a teacher in Norwich or a factory worker, you should be able to afford this. Uh And you should go to a regular dairy aisle, not an organic, natural, expensive aisle, but a regular aisle, Mm -hmm. and you should be able to buy this. For that, I knew that this had to look different, but not scary, Mm -hmm. like me. (laughs) 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 <laughs> so if you tasted it, it should be different to look at it and say, hmm, I wonder what this is. But once you taste it, you're hooked. Yeah. And that was such a difficult combination to put it together. That's why I needed two years. Yeah. Because I only had one shot at this. So I had to think about it in every single angle. And I did not hire agencies. I did not ha- hire Simply, I didn't have money. Mm-hmm. And I designed the label with people in the plant. Mm-hmm. I would bring everybody from the plant and the factory um, line operators or Maria or Rich or Frank and say, what do you think about this? What do you think yeah. about this? And we would make some changes on this. Um, but that cup, that name, that Greek yogurt, that what's inside mm-hmm. and how it's priced, it was all combination of it. I cannot give credit to one thing. Right. But part of the combination you've already started to say were the people that you brought in. Now, in a campaign, you start usually with that core group of about four or five people, but then you get the volunteers and you get the other people who Mm -hmm. will go out and go door to door and knock on doors and you canvas. Now, I've canvassed a couple of times and it's really depressing. You had to get a sales team to go out and sell the yogurt. How did you encourage them so the next time someone out there is going to run for office and needs to get people to give up their Fridays and their Saturdays and Sundays and go knock on doors from? How do you energize them? Combination of hate and love. And I'll tell you what I mean. In that order? Could be love and hate too. Okay. But I hated that they closed that factory. Ah. I hated that someone from distance just without seeing Maria, without seeing Rich, without seeing Mike, without seeing Frank, closed it. And it was 
totally not their fault. They, they worked, they worked hard. That community was a beautiful community. Mm-hmm. Um, so I told them, here's our chance to get back. Mm-hmm. That not that we have to prove ourselves to anyone, but by fixing this plant, we can show the world that what we are made of. And we can show our children, we can show ourselves who, are, who, who, who we are made of. Mm-hmm. I don't know how we're gonna walk to that mountain. I don't know how we're gonna climb to that mountain. But I can tell you something. I will be here day and night and weekend and Christmas and Thanksgiving and New Year with you. If you give me that chance, I'll give you that chance. We'll work together mm-hmm. and we'll make this happen. And yet some of what's up ahead is unknown. Now, I've heard you quote someone yes. on more than and one I, account. <laughs> and, and I've taken your advice for this podcast. Uh, my favorite quote on Rumi says, when you start walking the way, the way appears. Um, we had no idea how we're going to do this, how we're going to get more machine, how we're going to find the money, how we're going to go to the cell. How we had no idea. But we were not going to sit down and wonder and be sad and be down and think about, you know, hands from the heaven was going to come down. Mm-hmm. We start painting the walls mm-hmm. because we didn't know what else to do at that day and that summer. We paint the walls. When we start painting the walls, the ideas start coming. Oh, we could do this, we could do that because it wasn't an act. And we found a way. We always found a way because we always um, had this optimistic way of w- walking forward. Mm-hmm. And our antennas were very open. And we knew that we are 100% in. Not 5% in or 10%. We were 100% in. You cannot walk alone. You cannot go forward when the people with you are 50% in. Right. You have to have the core group. I, I say to people, instead of having 100 people, 50% in, have a two people, the 100% in. It's better. Yeah. Because it's like a snowball, right? I mean, it's just rolling. It just yeah. takes more. Mm-hmm. With those four people, we were, we were connected after that summer. The, after we paint those walls, we were in. Mm-hmm. And when they came to the factory, I was there before they were there. And they would leave before I was there. Mm-hmm. And then after a while, we would st- sleep in the plant together in, in the offices, in the chairs, because the yogurt was being inoculated. Once we had that going, that energy started going out into the field. Kyle will come to the plant and see us. And he would go to the pl- people and say, let me tell you about these people. Let me tell you about this town. Let me tell you about this, this factory. And let me tell you about this yogurt that we made. Uh-huh. That energy started traveling across the country, everywhere. And when mo- new people joined, they joined into that heat, that, that undescribable, this fighting mode that we had. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we were filled with love because we wanted to make things right. We wanted to make things right for the community. We wanted to make things right with the people who were eating. We wanted to make things right for the you know, farmers and all that kind of stuff. So, I hate what they've done to this place, and that is, a, 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 that is another uh, aspect. But I want to build it in a way that never been built any before, and then, then it's sustainable for the long time. Yeah, it's so parallel, so many big political movements. A small amount of people with a core idea, with that second core, and then just that energy that builds around it. You could look at Bill Clinton in 92 coming out of Arkansas. You could look at uh, Howard Dean in 2004, you know, from Vermont 
coming out of nowhere and rolling towards almost a victory. You can look at it at Bernie Sanders. It's, it's that energy that you have in the beginning is extremely important. And that's up to the you. So we've been discussing today why excellence goes beyond just teamwork, how it takes the total dedication by every member of the team. Now, I've been extolling the virtues of FedEx on every episode, and let me explain one of the reasons why I'm pretty comfortable when I'm asked to do it. They have something called the Purple Promise. Now, I know that sounds a little weird, but let me read you something that hangs on the wall of every FedEx office. Quote, We are united behind one Purple Promise. I will make every FedEx experience outstanding. Now, the Purple Promise is simple, but its effects are far-reaching. Our promise unites us across regions, roles, and companies. When we live the Purple Promise, we create a powerful advantage that separates us from our competition. Well, don't you want somebody handling your packages that believes in that? So, when it's your stuff, when you need someone to get it where it's going, when it needs to get there, to whom it needs to get to, I think you want to turn to FedEx. They're affordable, they're fast, and they keep the Purple Promise every day. Now, once you get past the smaller races and you get into the bigger races, just like you go from a local market to a bigger market, now you get into the field of advertising. Mm -hmm. You guys don't look like you advertise the usual way. Now, we're going through huge changes in advertising in politics. The old saying, the 30-second spot is dead. Now, you could look back. The most famous one of all time was in 1964 when Lyndon Johnson was running for re-election. It was the famous Daisy Girl ad, which focused and he was portraying his opponent as being a little too hot and a little bit too anxious to push the button and create a war. And it had this little girl picking the petals off the daisy, and it counts down, and it takes a, a close-up going closer to the eye, and you're in the pupil of the eye, and you see a mushroom cloud explode. Mm. And you hear the voice, these are the stakes. That kind of advertising is gone. It doesn't work anymore. What do you guys know? How do you communicate now? How do you advertise? And in a sense, you know, I don't want to compare a candidate to yogurt, because the yogurt tastes a lot better. <laughs> but but how, do you, how do you sell today? I, I didn't have a lot of money, so I couldn't do all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So you had to do what you could do. Um, I go back to time when my father used to travel to Istanbul from our hometown mm -hmm. and would go to certain places but you would hear about those places, either a restaurant or a hotel or someone to sell the cheese to or whatever it is, is the reputation that would come all the way travel to the city. So um, someone will say, oh, go to this place, recommend. I recommend you go see this place uh -huh. or you can see this place. And, and it, of course, who's recommending is extremely important, mm -hmm. but word to mouth right. was probably is the oldest way of advertising. But when you go national. Yeah, so here's it is. So I start getting these. The first person that I opened up the Facebook page for Chobani myself. Uh -huh. And the first person who was the fan was Jackie at the pizzeria. <laughs> <laughs> she still is the first person who liked the page. Um, 
the number that we had on the cop, 1-800 number, right. was my phone number. <laughs> I was answering the calls when it was coming from the consumer. And it was fun back then because the person will call and say, I love this. It reminds me when I grew up on this. And I love this. And I like, basically, I was keep hearing from people say, I will tell all my friends and family about this. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine if everybody says, I'm going to tell all my friends and family about this because they love the product so much and they will tell uh-huh. their friends and family. And in this digital time, when you have social yeah. media, Twitter, Facebook, and friends and, and all that stuff, I said, this is the only way we can do this, is to, is to go in the social human mm-hmm. uh, interaction. So for the first three years, every comment came from anyone, or email, or phone call, or anything. I personally knew who he was, what it was, mm-hmm. and most of it responded by me. Mm-hmm. And all the executives in the company, we didn't have executive, but all sales right. guy, me, or all that stuff, had the same email. It's good or bad, and we responded. And I don't remember, I, I, I remember like yesterday. And one lady called me. She was probably 75, 80 years old. And she started telling me about bad things about the yogurt. Oh, you should have done this. You should have done that. Why didn't you have this? Well, I am keep listening. This conversation is going on for 45, day, 45 minutes almost. Yeah. And she started telling me about where she's from. She was from Hungary, you know, during the Holocaust. And she came and she has family, all that stuff. But she's rough on me. She's, she's really rough on yeah. me. Like she's not telling me like, how beautiful the yogurt is and how I am. But she's keep talking and I'm talking. And then... Another phone rang, and she says, hold on, hold on, hold on. She put my phone on the side, and then she started talking <laughs> so to the other So she put you person. on hold. She put me on the hold. Not even on hold. I can hear she's talking to the other person. And she finished it. She came back, and she said, are you still there? I said, yes, ma'am, I'm still here. And she laughed, and she said, you know what? You're going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to be okay, and I'm continuing to buy your yogurt. What I mean by that is I was so focused to convince that person Mm-hmm. that I hear you, that even though I don't agree all your criticism that you're making on the yogurt, but you have my commitment. I will try everything I can. I didn't say that, but with staying on the phone for almost like an hour, mm-hmm. it's not only a message I'm giving to that person, which I was not trying to teach anyone anything, right. but everyone around me in the company would know mm-hmm. that one person is so important. Again, that it, one person it, is extremely important that we spend time to understand where they come from and give our best. And it's funny because that almost mirrors exactly what's happening to contemporary politics. We're going away from the big media buy. We're going for away from the big, and it's about networks. It's about peer-to-peer. It's about neighbor-to-neighbor. Everything comes around again. Exactly. Now, one of the things that unfortunately comes around again every once in a while is a problem. And I don't mean a problem. I mean a big problem. You know, um, I always think of the old Monty Python. You never know when the French Revolution is going to hit. And in a campaign or in an administration, bad things happen. Bill Clinton out of nowhere had to deal with Oklahoma City. George Bush out of nowhere had to deal with 9-11. Barack Obama, when he ran, there are certain big things that happened. The charges about the Reverend Wright. I guess in politics, we call it one thing. In business, you would call it crisis communications. You had a tough time. I guess it was in 2013. What yeah. happened? How we did you handle it? We had a recall. Yeah. It wasn't a big, massive recall, but it was a mold 
nothing mm-hmm. dangerous or anything that happens all the time but it wasn't um pretty right mm-hmm. in the cup and and we were in all over the media everywhere yeah um, and we were shocked after five years look look we four people to 2000 people and largest yogurt factory in idaho we're still 100 percent independent mm-hmm. we've done unthinkables and you feel like you're almost untouchable too mm-hmm. but then this little bug called mold <laughs> says i'll come when you are not look- looking yeah um and it was first time we were hearing things from people like you know that we were not used to it hurt us it hurt me it hurt everybody i went out and apologized i said this is not what we promised you and you know mm. we failed that was a human communication that we did and then i went to the plant you know the the department i i started consumer communication or uh, customer loyalty team um i went there and there i saw the strength of chobani uh, how so imagine a a first floor of a old building at 10 p.m. 11 p.m. Uh, there's phone lines all over the floor everywhere and tables and I see faces that is not in based on that team they are from the plant they're from the finance team they're from you know R&D or they're from all different type of uh, departments people volunteered to come to answer the calls and answer the emails. All hands on deck? All hands on deck. And we refused to give this to a secondary party, which they answer the calls and typical answer comes back, oh, we'll send you a coupon and we're sorry this happened. Actual real person is answering and actual real person from the company is answering, hearing that anger is, am I gonna be okay? Yes, you're gonna be okay. There is nothing in here and, and all that. And, and I went there and there were some tears uh, on people's eyes, including mm-hmm. mine. And I still have a picture. We got together, we took a picture. And from there, I went to Idaho, to the plant where that happened. Mm-hmm. And for three months, I never left Idaho. Mm. And every day, I went to the plant from about 6, 7 o'clock until 12 p.m., uh, and t- except Sundays. And I went to three shifts. No, no firing, no blaming and just be with them and, and do this. And I realized the only time you test or you judge the culture or the strength of culture or the strength of organization, not when you're going up, right? when you're going down, when you hit a wall, when you have a tough time, when you have a crisis. Mm-hmm. That's when you know what you're made of. Mm-hmm. That's the true test. That's when you know who your friends are. Who your friends are, what you're made of. Are yeah. you an organization of a good days or are you an organization of a good or bad days, just like in a marriage? Yeah. And, and somebody that. told me this. He said, Hamdi, you're going to look back and say, this is one of the best things ever happened to you. Because that incident made me realize what I have so valuable, what I was missing things, and mm-hmm. what I need to improve. Yeah. And the next three years, what I did is implement every learning that I had from there. You know, it's an old saying, but you do learn from your mistakes. Exactly. And mistakes don't have to be dumb. No. They could just be something that was around the corner you couldn't see. Or something that you did 99 times in a row, 100th, just a little bit off. Stuff happens. Stuff happens. And in the shadow of big success, a lot of wrongs can be hidden. Mm-hmm. Because you're getting excited. 
one day your sales is 100 million, the next day is 200, the next day 500. If you look at that measurement, everything is going up. But there might be something going on on the bottom. You don't see it because that's more, that's more flashy. Right. When that flash comes down, you realize what is not right. So I always tell people, you know, the signs of failure comes way earlier than it happens. The mm-hmm. question is, are you going to see it? Yeah. As it's tough to see it. Right. When you're celebrating yeah. and partying. Now, one last thing before I get into two big picture things that we'll end with. There are sort of two minds, and I don't mean to make criticism of anyone on this, but there are some campaigns that, and I'm talking governor, senator, president, and like, where they try to insulate the candidate, have very few availabilities. They try to control it as much as it can be controlled. I won't name names. There are a lot of them. And then you contrast it to what happened in 2000 when John McCain ran and had his famous Straight Talk Express where buses open. It's open for everybody. How much do you make yourself available to your customers, to your distributors, to the press? How much is too much? How much is not enough? How available do you have to be? Because a candidate is the product. So what's your experience? I I think... Quality availability is, is, is extremely important. I, I have different reasons. One is I have to have time for myself and I have to have time myself mm-hmm. to be able to see where things are and how things are working and spend time with the team. So when it comes to internal things, my door has, doors are very, very open. So I'm very, very available. Outside, I have a big wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a wall that I'm, I'm trying to separate myself from the world because there's, there's so much ass coming from everywhere and I come into realization that it's impossible to respond to every single one of them and if there's a way of screening a good screening that coming in that this idea is a great I should be knowing about it this event is great I should be there this message is good I should be telling talking about it but this isolation sometimes and I call it isolation sometimes makes you distance from reality right. what's on the street what's on people's mind what's something things and if you're trying to get those from the, your advisors or people that work for you and all that kind of stuff it's not your observation it's somebody else's observation yeah and when you respond through that it's always you're not authentic really even though the intentions are there but you're not authentic um, I am very much connected to life, like very much. Yep. I have not changed much from how I used to live when I was studying the company. Mm-hmm. Still enjoy the same thing. I still walk on the streets. I still go to shop. I still look at the tomatoes and smell it. And I still get mm-hmm. sometimes upset on certain things and, and enjoy certain things. So I'm very much connected to life from that aspect. Um, but I am not responding to everybody who writes to me, everybody who wants to talk to me, and everybody, because it's impossible. Right. And I used to be bothered by this a lot because I want to respond and be the guy who Chobani is about. Yeah. But when you realize that you don't have enough time and resources, uh, then you accept the hard truth. And I'm, my opinion is authenticity is the number one thing in any field, in politics, in right. business, and whatever it is. You always learn, you always get um, you know, advices, you always get these things. But the most important thing is when you start communicating, is it your words? Is it your thoughts? Is it your way? And if it is, 
every single person in the universe will recognize who is authentic. And it's probably more important now because of the rise of millennials, Gen X, Gen Z, and I would wager that's probably where a bunch of your sales come from. Goodness knows it's where the candidates are going to have to appeal because they're going to be the vote. So plugging into just that, that idea, it's the way you get a vote, it's the way you sell a container of yogurt. It's no difference. Yeah. It's no difference because we, as human beings, we always recognize the one who is very real. Mm-hmm. We always do, unless some can fool really dramatically. We might not like what they say. We might not think that they are very, you know, highly smart and, you know, very yeah. speak from top down, but we can identify with that person. If I can identify with you, then I can make a really decision of I like you or I don't like you, or I trust you or I don't trust you. Mm-hmm. But I got to know who the person is. The biggest thing is, if I cannot identify with you, even though you might be a really, really good person, even though you might have a really good intention, even though your true you is hidden because you have so much advisors that are trying to make you smarter and better, but they all truly love you and, and trust you. But that absence of yourself and the communication or response and all that kind of stuff makes me wonder who is in there. Right. Yeah. Now... Two things, because we're in this rather unique building, and you've done unique things with the company. And I know with everything else, talking to your customers, making outstanding yogurt, even if I say so myself, you have found the time to get involved in some issues. Mm -hmm. One of the things I've heard you speak and talk about in a very interesting fashion is the need not to follow, in a sense, the um, Silicon Valley model, you know, let's find the next, but... You talk about rural, that that's where the discoveries are going to be made, not in the next Silicon Valley, but in the next Albany, in the next Idaho. I am saddened by what's going on with this left-behind rural, so-called rural America, which Mm -hmm. I think the heart of America. I really do. I, I think it's the heart and soul of America. And that disconnection will not do any good for this country, for any country. Mm-hmm. That that disconnect. So, how do we get back to our roots with the modern times, you know, resources at the mm-hmm. same time? Uh, and that's what um, I tried to talk about. And I said, you know, um, you know, everybody's looking for the next uh, big thing, leaving these gold mines behind. And right. I call it gold mines. And why don't you why don't you connect to that one and build the next big things out of there? Mm-hmm instead of encouraging everyone to leave. So um, I find another one in Idaho. Um, you know, it's in the two parts of the world. Um, but we have problems. We have massive income inequality. We have drugs among the young. Sure. We have um, kids not having access to good food. And we have young people leaving, you know, in a dramatic way. Um, how do we reverse this? you know, is in the shoulder of the companies, in the businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tell everyone, just close your eyes, put your finger in the map, pick a town and go invest and, and, and be part of that community, see magic happens. Yeah, as you have proven at least twice, and I'm sure Absolutely. we'll prove again. Last topic, because one cannot 
end a conversation with you without just asking what your current feeling is about the refugee crisis. You have spent so much time, money, effort, and tears on it. How are we doing? I'm not doing well. We're not doing well. Nobody's doing well. The world is failing again. Um, You know, you know it. You know, we talked a lot about this. The world is failing again since, you know, the World War II. We have about 20 to 25 million refugees, um, and then we have about over 60 million uh, displaced people. Um, The conditions are, is, you know, people see it on TVs and magazines Mm -hmm. and, you know, in, in newspapers, but ongoing every single day every day the things are pretty bad um so the refugee when we talk about it they they always think that the refugee that comes here the refugee that comes here or the europe is only small percentage of the population the vast mm-hmm. majority of them lives nearby where the conflicts are they live in turkey in lebanon in jordan ethiopia you know bangladesh that's where they are and these are poor countries <laughs> you know they are not like western countries and they are carrying all these burdens and the solution is if not is not and nobody thinks that way and nobody argues that way and nor I think that it's the right way to do it nobody's thinking that these people should be leaving those areas and going to the you know western world the question is what are we going to do while we're there there and bring them you know help to uh, Jordan or Turkey or yeah, to solve the problem solve there. the problem there so my wake up to this was um, when the Sinjar Mountains were attacked by ISIS, the girls got kidnapped, and they're mm-hmm. Kurdish, they're Yazidis, but they're Kurdish. And I look at the page in, in the paper, and I said, this looks like my mother, this looks like my aunt. And I immediately get involved, and I didn't know much about it, and I went to Geneva, UNHCR, and I went to IRC, and I went to talk to people, and I was blown away how big this issue was in a humanitarian bay, and I was blown away how little people were involved with it, mm-hmm. and how old-fashioned way it is being handled from the registrations to you know camps to education to all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and you know all I know is business I'm an entrepreneur and I said you know what we got to get the business people involved and I formed tent I committed all my most majority of my wealth for mm-hmm. this cause and for those people who don't know what Tent is, Tent is... Tent is a, a private foundation I have is uh, that I formed after that uh, incident to help refugees worldwide. Right. And the biggest thing we do with Tent is bring businesses to commit publicly that they will help refugees wherever they are in the world. They are, if they are here, how, you know, employing them, educating them, or training them. If they are in Jordan, you know, bring them to work there or help or education. So we started with two, three companies, you know, in Davos in 2016. Today we have 110 companies. Last week we had about 10 more commitments came in. Um, I mean, this is, this is good, but still it's not, you know, it's not even close to be... We uh, do not see the light at the end of the tunnel yet. No, But the saddest part is these are the people who are suffering. These are the people who are terrorized. These are the people left from their homes. The kids, half of them are kids. Women uh, lost everything they have, and it wasn't their fault. And now they're labeled as, you know, God forbid, terrorists. You know, Mm -hmm. they're labeled that they're going to come and do this and do that to the community. It's the saddest thing to see on the people's minds. So we have a a branding problem because every single person who gets to know the suffering people would love to do something to help. This is in our, our, you know, uh, the gods made made us that way. But I think 
the, the unfortunate part of it is become, become part of the pop politic conversations instead of having a, a conscious conversation of solving this humanitarian problem. One thing will happen, Michael, is that if we don't solve this or if we don't put our hands out there, if we don't start feeling about the, the human tragedy that these people are going, our kids are going to pay for it, right? The yep. world is not going to be a safe place. The world is not going to be a just place. The world is going to be a divided place. The walls cannot be built that high. No, no, you said it perfectly. And, and I see one more thing. Going forward, these type of problems are not going to be solved by governments or big NGOs. They're going to be solved by businesses, brands, and most importantly, ordinary people. And they're going to make the choices of who they like or what kind of yogurt they like or what kind of company they like. It comes down to people. It comes down to people. So last question because we have to wrap up. We've been very serious the last 10 minutes or so, and yet you're one of the most optimistic people I've ever met. Why? (laughs) What keeps you getting up in the morning and saying, I want to get back to work on anything from yogurt to... The refugee crisis. How do you do it? I, I don't know. I, I, um, I think it's coming from my nomad side that um, I could see things without too much attachment around it. I could mm-hmm. see it very clear. Um, I think about this every once in a while. When I went to that plant on that you know, cold day, having that right. tour, and you know, getting this factory and saying that I'm going to make something out of this, I truly believed in it. Mm-hmm. I really did, even though it logically it's impossible. Logically, mathematically, whatever the urgent right, it can't be done. It cannot be done until it's done. Until it's done, <laughs> it, you, you you can hit it from every angle, and you say in five years you cannot make. When we were painting that wall, <laughs> and those people who were laughing at us from the you know, biker's bar. And if I turn around to tell them and say, hey, guys, listen to me. Two years from now, I'm going to launch yogurt from here. It's going to take me a long time to make 60 cases, but I'm going to launch it. And then five years from that day, this factory is going to be the biggest yogurt factory in the country. And yet, I'm going to build the biggest factory in the world in Idaho. I haven't even been in the Idaho, but I will. But that's <laughs> what is going to happen. This place is going to produce one million cases a week. Imagine, I produce 60 cases in eight hours. It's going to produce one million cases a week. And then it's going to produce two million cases in a week, year after. This company is going to be a billion dollars in sales in five years. These four people that you see that paint in the wall is going to be 2,000 people in five years. And the houses that are being sold in here, they're all going to be purchased back. Everybody who built this factory is going to be built by the local people. And your bar is going to be my warehouse. <laughs> and I'm going to pay $300,000 for it. And guess what? Maria and Rich and Frank will still be here mm-hmm. and see all of these things. They will look at me and say, brother, what have you been drinking? or what you've been smoking. Yeah. It's impossible from every angle because you know why the one filler that you wanted to buy to make more yogurt will take you 15 months to get it. Mm-hmm. One filler. You need 12 of them and you have no money. From every angle you look at it, it's impossible until you get elevated. Once you get elevated, you're not in a common place anymore. You're in a place 
where the logic doesn't make any sense. You're locked in and you will find a way. You just don't know how, but you will. And that's what we call it. When you start walking the way, the way appears. As we've learned. Thank you. Thank you. So that's what policymakers and lawmakers can learn from a yogurt maker. Thanks for listening to Politics as Unusual today, brought to you by our sponsor, FedEx. They're affordable. They're fast. Be sure to join us for our next episode when I'll ask the burning question, aren't elections just miniseries? And our guest will be the executive producer and head writer of The West Wing, Eli Addy. To survive, a show has to be somebody's favorite show. And I think that's a principle that applies to politics, too. There have to be people passionate about you. I'm Michael Sheehan, and this is Politics as Unusual.